I'm Amber Tresca, and this is About IBD. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 110. This podcast is part of the American Gastroenterological Association Colitis Conversations Program. Medications and lifestyle interventions are both used to treat inflammatory bowel disease. Sometimes patients come up against barriers in getting their medications or in taking them as prescribed. Many patients are also interested in going beyond medication and in understanding how they can use lifestyle interventions to help have a better quality of life. To dig deeper into this topic, I talked to Dr. Better Albawardi, a gastroenterologist specializing in IBD and an assistant professor of medicine at Yale University School of Medicine, and Tina Haupert, an ulcerative colitis patient, certified nutrition coach, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner, and the founder of Carrots and Cake. We uncover some of the reasons why patients might not be able to access their medications and the lifestyle interventions that might help with quality of life. Plus. Tina tells us what it's like to be an IBD mom of a young son who doesn't mind giving updates after a visit to the bathroom. Our focus today is approaches to treatment in IBD, including medication and lifestyle changes. And to get into this topic, I have two guests with me. First is Dr. Bader L. Mawardi, who is a gastroenterologist and IBD specialist with Yale New Haven Health. Dr. L. Mawardi, welcome. Hi, Amber. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, thank you so very much. And my second guest is Tina Halpert, certified nutrition coach and functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner, the founder of Carrots and Cake and ulcerative colitis patient. Welcome, Tina. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. Me too. It's been a long time. I'm glad we're finally reconnecting today and working together once again, Tina. So we're talking about treatment plans for IBD, which includes both medication and lifestyle changes. And the first thing I want to talk about is taking medications on time, because that's a really important part of treatment. So Dr. Albawardi, what do you think patients need to keep in mind when it comes to taking their medications on time? Yeah, I think a lot of factors um, have to be considered when it comes to taking medications on time. I think it really goes back to the initial conversation that the patient has with their provider or their physician. What really improves adherence or taking medications on time is, number one, understanding why you're on the medication. So that's a really important point that sometimes gets missed, and it should really be discussed during that initial visit prior to getting on the medication. So number one, knowing why you're on the medication. Number two, also I think knowing what the medication does. So just sort of like an overview, simple, brief, what does the medication do in the body? What is it doing to help the inflammation? And then another really important factor is knowing obviously the risk profile, risks and benefits. There are a lot of things that can sometimes contribute to patients missing medications, not taking medications. And if we really don't ask, we won't know what the reason is. So I think it really boils down to knowing these factors prior to being on the medication that will help patients remain on their medications. Mm-hmm. I think another thing that's difficult to wrap your head around is the idea that you're going to need these medications to treat ulcerative colitis for a long period of time. I don't know that that's always communicated or communicated effectively. Is there anything that you've found that helps your patients understand that and then to cope with the idea of a long-term use of medications? 
Yeah, that's certainly very challenging, especially with a new diagnosis. Um, there's a lot to know in the new diagnosis. There's number one, knowing what the diagnosis is, prognosis. So telling a, a patient that they're going to be on a medication for a long time becomes very challenging. And, um, you know, I found a couple of things that might be helpful for some patients. One is using some analogies to say this is sort of like other chronic diseases such as diabetes or high blood pressure when you need to be on the medications to control. And if you do go off the medications, the risk of the disease flaring up or having active disease is high. And then another thing that I found really helpful is to sort of break down the treatment plan into stages. So we have our short-term goals, we have our intermediate goals, we have our long-term goals. So when we first start the treatment, let's focus on the short-term goals um, which, you know, for us and for the patient is really we want you to feel better. So start getting some response to the treatment. Then are sort of our intermediate goals where we want you to actually start feeling normal, getting the quality of life back. And then, you know, eventually our long-term goals, which can include the things that a lot of our patients know about by now, which is making sure the labs look better, the inflammation markers are improving, you know, the endoscopy, the inflammation on the endoscopy is improving. All of those are sort of considered our long-term goals. And once we kind of achieve those short-term, intermediate, long-term, then we can start talking about what can we do to be on sort of the lowest effective dose of the medication or kind of talk about these, these things. But we certainly revisit them throughout these stages. But I think breaking it down into stages helps patients move, move from that um, sort of shock that they're going to be on a medication for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I like that idea of the analogy of other conditions that people might be more familiar with. A lot of times patients, in my experience, the patients that I've talked to have never even heard of IBD or ulcerative colitis when they're diagnosed. So it's really a shock. Tina, when you were first diagnosed, did anybody tell you that you needed to be on medication for a long time? Or did you come to that realization? Or, you know, how did you handle that? So I think my first doctor, it's my first doctor who is not my doctor anymore, um, but I think he probably did say, you know, take this drug indefinitely. And I think in my head, it was one of those like, well, I have, you know, just some GI stuff going on. I'm going to take this medication and it's going to get me better. And I really did not think it was something I needed to take for years, the rest of my life. Um, but it just was not communicated clearly. And I, I do agree, you know, if the doctor would have explained the what and the why and like the whole reasoning why I would need to take this drug for long term, um, I, I think I probably would have done a lot better in the early days of being diagnosed. So yeah, it just wasn't as clear, I guess. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's also because of things like, for instance, when we think of GI conditions, I think sometimes we think of short-term things like like um, having like the stomach flu or gastroenteritis, and we think, okay, you take something for a little while and then it's gone. Or also that as young people, you know, you were diagnosed young as well, that we're just not used to thinking of like long-term conditions. Yeah, probably a little bit of both, to be honest, because I really thought it was just something that was transient. You know, I had eaten something weird or, something, you know, yeah. something, just something wasn't right. Because back then I felt like it, all the symptoms did kind of come out of nowhere. You know, maybe I was dealing with a little something, but then things got a lot worse. Um, but yeah, just, you know, that whole idea, you know, I was 31, you know, I was young. Um, and to think that I would have to take meds for the rest of my life. I mean, that was a scary, scary thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, combination of the both for sure. 
Dr. Elbowardi, patients might stop their medication sometimes, and that's for so many different reasons that we can't even really begin to cover them all uh, today. But I wonder if you have any examples about any times that, that you or your team have helped a patient overcome uh, the barriers and the idea of taking their medications on time and for a long period of time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, these are scenarios that we do encounter on a regular basis in our clinical practice. And as I usually teach our trainees, you know, the first rule in the scenario is make no assumptions. Mm -hmm. Um, This is really um, a common scenario. And if it does happen, the solution for it is clear communication. And I usually just start with, you know, sitting down with the patient, especially if it's a patient I'm meeting for the first time, who's been on medications on in the past, stop the medications. And then, you know, as, as healthcare providers, we really should review kind of, you know, previous events, et cetera, but to make no assumptions. And I usually like to start with an open-ended question saying, I see that you've been on medication X, Y, Z in the past. What do you think of this medication? And uh, a lot of the times I'm really surprised about the answers that I get. It's uh-huh. um, a lot of the times things that we can easily solve I'll give you a couple of, you know, examples that come to mind from recent encounters is, well, a medication was stopped because of cost. And we know our, you know, medications that we use to treat IBD can be associated with a significant financial toxicity. Mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate to be part of a IBD team in our institution where we have a dedicated IBD pharmacist who was able to solve this very easily. Mm. and was able to find a way where the out-of-pocket costs would be covered. So uh, again, it's one of those, another scenario where if we don't ask, we don't know. And, you know, other reasons that do come up frequently also is uh, concern for side effects or concern for risks. And um, it, this takes time. This is not something that we'll be able to kind of go over in a quick visit or after the colonoscopy, let's talk about this really quick. No, this is this is a conversation that also should not be handled over the phone. It's better handled in a, in a clinic visit. This is concept of sort of an absolute risk of a medication versus a relative risk. And I think when it's explained clearly to a patient that, you know, all medications have risks and benefits, but if we look at the absolute risk of medication XYZ is actually lower than these things that can happen in your daily life, then the patients might be more amenable to taking the medication. Um, So I think clearly communicating the risks of the medication is also key. Um, So those are some examples, but there, as you mentioned, Amber, there's many other examples for for kind of non-adherence. And it's really the, it's really on us to, to be able to, you know, to be able to communicate effectively with our patients to figure that out and solve these issues. Mm-hmm. I wrote that down, what you said, financial toxicity. I kind of love that phrase. Mm-hmm. Do patients often bring it up when they are concerned about the cost of a medication? Do they bring it up before they leave the office? Or is it something where I, I've read to where patients will leave, go to fill their prescription, maybe find out the cost and then not get it filled? Is that something that occurs a lot? Yeah, I think, you know, from my experience, it can occur in two stages. Mm. You know, the well-read patient will come in and will say, you know what, these are expensive medications. I'm not sure I'm going to be taking these. Yeah. And then there's others, like you said, who would 
be okay taking it. And then once they figure out their out-of-pocket cost, um, then they would be hesitant. You know, that's why the, you know, the care of the patient with IBD is really a multidisciplinary care. You need to have that safety net, whether it's an IBD pharmacist or, or a social worker that can help, you know, navigate through um, the cost of medications that can really inhibit adherence. IBD pharmacists are, I think, worth their weight in gold, oh, quite my God. frankly. They're, they're gems. <laughs> yes. just, just fantastic. I know I've had the experience where I've gone to the pharmacy and the pharmacist will kind of whisper. They'll kind of like motion to you over the counter, like, you know, well, not now because of COVID. Um, but before, you know, they would motion to you, come on over. And they'd be like, do you know how much this costs? <laughs> it's like, okay. um, well, yes, unfortunately, yes, I, I, I do know. And unfortunately, also, this is just what we have to deal with. But yeah, so Tina, you've written in your blog about the symptoms of your flare-ups and the different ways you've worked towards remission now and in the past. How about starting new medications or changing medications? Can you talk about what goes into your decision-making process when you're faced with that kind of a decision? Oh, I mean, <laughs> honestly, it's usually like at a point of desperation where um, I am like, give me the new meds, <laughs> like uh, whatever's next. Um, because usually it's because a med just stops working. I mean, I've had great success with, you know, meds and biologics over the years, and then they stop working. And then um, it really is, you know, what's the next thing? So I have been, I haven't really been that resistant to trying new meds. I mean, mm -hmm. if it's going to get me in remission and I can live my life, um, I, I'm, I'm pretty good to go. I mean, obviously, you know, the side effects pop in my head and, you know, the expense and everything, but at the end of the day, I just want to be healthy enough to do all the things that I love in life. And I have been in phases where I could not leave my house and I could not, you know, go to the grocery store without worrying about where a bathroom was. So I am all about staying in remission. Yeah. I was reading um, one of your blog posts where you were disclosing your fecal calprotectin numbers and oh. they were wild. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just way like I've never seen anyone with it that high. So. Yeah. Yeah. So October was 2250. Um, and then not last Friday, the Friday before was 49. <laughs> wow. So it's been a big change. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what you're doing is working. Mm -hmm. So that's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the reasons that we know that staying on medications is important is because we have to stop that inflammation mm -hmm. and get into remission if we can get there. So Dr. Albawardi, I'm wondering though, what kinds of complications might occur with untreated ulcerative colitis? Right. Um, so there are a few that we should really touch on in terms of complications. One is the obvious one, that the ulcerative colitis will become active and then you'll become symptomatic. And that could be associated with needing emergency room visits, hospitalizations, and then needing courses of corticosteroids. And, you know, comparing corticosteroids versus our other medications, it seems that corticosteroids are really associated with the highest risk of complications or um, adverse events. Now, um, in general, if inflammation is untreated for a long time, we talked about hospitalization that might have the patient present with what we call acute severe ulcerative colitis, um, which is sort of a severe form of the colitis that might require urgent surgical intervention. You know, the other sort of long-term potential complications that might occur if 
inflammation in the colon is left untreated is, although the absolute risk of this happening is low, but if we have untreated inflammation for many years, there is a risk of uh, colon cancer that happens to be higher in patients with ulcerative colitis that goes untreated versus those that have treated in uh, ulcerative colitis. So it's a wide spectrum. Thankfully, a lot of these can be prevented if um, treatment is effective and we're maintained on the effective treatment. Mm-hmm. Tina, sometimes we hear in the community that there are folks who are a little more resistant to taking medications. I have a theory also that sometimes the idea of an injection or an infusion can seem scarier, for instance, than like taking an oral drug since we take, you know, a lot of us take, you know, supplements and and it's pretty commonplace. Has anyone ever said to you, oh, you know, you shouldn't take medication or you should try to get off medication? And do you have an answer for that or a way of dealing with that? I mean, not specifically to me, because I've always been very open to taking medication just because I want to feel healthy. But yeah, I mean, I have talked to people with IBD who, you know, are afraid of, you know, infusions, injections. Um, They don't want to take them. Um, And I do always remind them, I'm like, if you let this get out of control, you know, you, there's always a risk of losing your colon. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I always remind them that the, the number one thing is to get the inflammation down and get yourself into a healthy place so you can live your life. But yeah, I have, I have definitely heard those conversations. And I think just kind of what you're saying, you know, having an infusion or injection, I just think it makes it so much more real that like, yes, this is like actually something that you have to deal with. And I feel like if you're just, you know, popping the pills, it's Mm -hmm. maybe not as obvious that this is like a big chronic disease that you have to deal with, at least for me. Um, because when I, you know, when on my first biologic, I had to go to the hospital and, you know, yeah. I had to take time out of my day to get an infusion and it just made it seem so much bigger <laughs> and just, yeah, it just made it so much more real to me. But obviously I know these medications help. Right. And you're obviously walking proof of this, you know, now that you've got things under control now with a, with a treatment plan that's working for you. Mm-hmm. Tina, you founded Carrots and Cake, where you help women with lifestyle changes so that they can achieve their goals. You live with ulcerative colitis, so I think that that adds another layer to your work. What kinds of lifestyle changes have you found helpful for your ulcerative colitis? Oh, so in recent times, just because I went through a flare that was more than a year, it was it was exhausting, but, Mm. (laughs) um, but I think sleep, I mean, it sounds so foundational and basic, but I mean, I was one of those people that was always like, Oh, you know, five hours sleep. That's fine. You know, I I can, (laughs) I can live, you know, I can do all the things that I want to do. And now I really prioritize sleep and I just feel like it makes everything better. And then also mentally, I'm always like, when you go to sleep, your body can heal. (laughs) So I'm big on the sleep piece. Um, and I really forced myself to go to bed like at a normal hour. Cause I used to be kind of that night owl. I would scroll, I'd be like watching Netflix. Um, but I think the sleep piece has been really, really good for me. And then also 
I'm going to put stress management in a umbrella term. Um, but specifically, um, talk therapy, um, has been so, so helpful. And I started right before the pandemic hit. I mean, that was just kind of good timing on my part, mm, yeah. but the last couple years, it's been just amazing. Just working things out, understanding things better about myself and, I mean, kind of deep down, I'm like, maybe this did help with the symptoms, um, the UC symptoms. But yeah, those are two things that have been top of my list lately. Mm -hmm. Do you see me trying to hide from you about the sleep? Because I'm like, <laughs> it's just, I, I really have tried, but I will like do, I will do anything except what I know will work, <laughs> which is like avoid screens at night, mm -hmm. try to go to bed at the same time, all of that, because, you know, it's, uh, our jobs are demanding and stressful and they take over our lives, unfortunately. Dr. Albawardi, have you found any lifestyle changes have been helpful for your patients? What are the types of things that they've tried or, or do you even recommend things? Absolutely. Uh, this is not a one-dimensional uh, treatment strategy. Uh, and I think the best strategy is when we can, you know, combine medications with lifestyle changes. Yes, in terms of the science, we don't have a lot of science on some of these lifestyle changes, but a lot of them actually make sense in terms of overall health. So I'm so glad Tina mentioned sleep. This is actually one of the things that it's usually top when, when we talk about lifestyle changes, because um, it does matter. Uh, sleep is, is, is important. And one of the things that I usually discuss is sleep hygiene. And Amber, you mentioned some of those things with sleep hygiene, you know, making sure you go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same time, avoid screen time. That is really um, one of the lifestyle sort of, uh, you know, healthy lifestyle habits that mm -hmm. we incorporate in management. Other sort of dimensions of lifestyle management, as mentioned by Tina, stress management is really important. Um, and I think there's many different modalities out there that, that, you know, patients will eventually find kind of the ones that work best for them, whether it's meditation, yoga, acupuncture. There's some sort of what we call low quality evidence that the, some of these lifestyle uh, changes do improve quality of life. And then in addition to those, um, I think in general, if we're talking about healthy lifestyle changes, um, we have to definitely incorporate diet and exercise. Mm -hmm. um, those are two, you know, essential components. And in terms of diet, um, you know, it, it's really, a for me, it's about not necessarily a, a specific diet per se, but it's, um, but it's about some general um, principles in terms of diet. So, you know, we want to make sure we're avoiding restrictive diets. And I think that's where we kind of run into trouble sometimes. So um, patients can lose weight with some of these restrictive diets. They can sometimes be missing some essential nutrients, um, focus on more whole food diet, avoiding processed or ultra processed foods. So general principles, but I think that's really important in terms of incorporating into the management um, plan or strategy. And then in terms of exercise, it's also a topic that it's not really talked about a lot in the IBD world. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the studies that looked at exercise in general, it is beneficial in terms of improving quality of life. And in patients who are starting out in remission, those that, you know, exercise regularly tended to have less flares, at least in one study. But, you know, before taking on an exercise program, I think patients should discuss this with their providers because the exercise regimen will be very different in a flare or in an acute flare or when you're in remission. 
So, um, so those are kind of the, some of the other lifestyle uh, additions that we can do in addition to medications. Mm-hmm. Which all sound very reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's nothing. It's nothing too um, too onerous. You know, it's uh, it just it just makes sense. And I'm thinking also in terms of the idea that IBD can also be associated with other conditions or a higher risk of other conditions. That things like exercise and diet will make a lot of sense just for your overall health. I'm thinking now about what's in store for the future and maybe things that are under study right now. So Dr. Albawardi, I'm wondering if there's anything that you're watching, anything that's upcoming in terms of approaches to treatment and new therapies or uh, complementary therapies. What do you hope is coming down the line for patients? Yes, so this is really an exciting time to be in, um, in you know, inflammatory bowel disease or in IBD management. So, um, you know, some of the upcoming, I uh, would say, therapies. Number one, we have an expanding sort of pipeline of new drugs, new agents. I mean, we're anticipating at least a couple to be approved uh, just this year, um, and many more currently in, you know, the advanced phases or phase three studies. So we're, we're definitely going to have more agents, which is definitely great for our patients, more options. Um, there's going to be, you know, more oral agents or pills, which we're hoping that would also, you know, have more patients be on board to taking some of these medications. Mm. Um, we're learning more and more on how to sort of personalize using some of these agents. So there's a lot of research going into trying to predict which patients would would sort of uh, respond to its treatment. So there's a lot of ongoing research there. Um, so that's in terms of kind of the current therapeutics. Um, and, you know, our medications have been mainly targeted at treating the immune system um, in this condition. So, but there's a lot more also research going on in terms of how do we target the microbiome mm. and uh, specifically in ulcerative colitis there's been multiple studies that showed maybe some potential benefit they're definitely early studies but some potential benefit in terms of targeting the microbiome and it's a matter of understanding how it's delivered how often it's delivered and the safety of of a delivery of of uh, some of these uh therapies that target the microbiome. So I think we're going to try to get to this condition from another dimension rather than just the immune system. And it could be that we combine our current medications with targeting um, the microbiome. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds amazing. Uh, We would really like to see that. Tina, what do you think? What do you hope is on the horizon in terms of lifestyle changes or treatments as far as ulcerative colitis is concerned? I mean, all of that sounds great to me because, I mean, I remember when I was first diagnosed, I mean, there weren't really even that many options. I mean, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, steroids or prednisone was the kind of like the go-to treatment. Still sometimes is. Um, But I just feel like there are so many more options. And I think that just, it's wonderful. Like, honestly, like I'm makes me very hopeful for the future. Um, But yes, I think also having some sort of integrated approach would be amazing, especially like the diet, the lifestyle, the sleep, you know, the stress management. Because I think all of those things really do contribute to just having a good quality of life. And I mean, I know in my my sickest times, some of those things were 
not a priority. Um, and I, I do mm. wonder if, you know, maybe I was sleeping a little bit more, if the flare would have been a little bit shorter or a little mm. less painful or whatever it was. So um, mm. I, I, I think a lot more doctors are coming around to that, though, with as far as like making these recommendations and a lot of this stuff, the foundational stuff, I think is really important. Yeah, I agree. You know, we used to be told that diet didn't matter and all these other things didn't matter. And now it's sort of coming around. And I feel like maybe we're playing a little bit of catch up as far as helping patients to understand that, yeah, you know, these things do matter. How you treat your body from day to day Mm -hmm. really does matter. And I know that we often joke about the friend who says, well, have you tried yoga? But, you know, honestly, yoga helps. So... (laughs) So we should do it. Dr. Albawardi, you were the healthcare honored hero at the Take Steps event for the Connecticut Westchester chapter of the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation that was last year in 2021. Is there anything that you can share with us about how that came about or what that experience was like for you? Well, uh, thanks for bringing that up. It was was definitely a great experience and um, it's definitely an honor to be considered for the Healthcare Honored Hero uh, for that year. And I think the foundation, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, does some really amazing work for, um, for patients. And it actually, one of the things I really like about the foundation is how it brings both, you know, uh, patients and also physicians, healthcare providers together. Um, so whether this is through their multiple educational events that can happen both on sort of a local, regional or national um, uh, f- um, fundraising events, walks and, uh, and all of these. So um, it, it really gives us also an opportunity as physicians and also healthcare provider to give back to the community um, and to really try to give back other than just what we do on a daily basis in clinic. I was watching your presentation that you gave. I'm going to have to look it up because now I can't find it to to say what the, (laughs) I should have, I should have written it down, but I was watching the presentation that you gave on complementary and alternative therapies. And I will put that link in the show notes because it was in conjunction with the foundation and it was really fantastic and just full of great information for patients. And I was uh, so glad to see it. And I really want to share it because I want people to be able to see it and benefit from that information that you brought. Thanks, Amber. Tina. (laughs) We all have them, but I'm going to ask you for yours. Do you have any funny or embarrassing stories that you can share with us about your life with ulcerative colitis? Oh my God. Well, so, so many. So many. I don't know. Some were probably not even appropriate. Um, <laughs> well, that's but, just better. <laughs> well, this is kind of an well, actually. So, in our house, um, IBD, pooping, the whole bit. Very, very open about it. We do make a lot of jokes from time to time. Um, I have a seven-year-old son, so of course, pooping and farting and everything is hilarious to him. Yeah. Um, but you know, trying to explain this disease to him, you know, why I'm in the bathroom so much, you know, why I'm laying on the couch, you know, just trying to explain it to him, but. Um, I, I basically gave him the details, you know, I don't want to like hide anything from him, but <laughs> every time he has what he th- says is a, you know, perfect poop, um, he announces it. 
<laughs> to the whole household. So he'll like go to the bathroom and come out and he'd be like, mama, that was a perfect poop. And I'm always so proud of him. So I know what it means to have the perfect poop. <laughs> well, let me ask you this though. Okay, his mind, your mind, whosoever's mind you wanna delve into in this moment. What makes a perfect poop? <laughs> I don't know. I think just everything went well in the bathroom. <laughs> this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so very, very much on talking with me about approaches to treatment and how you approach it from the patient side and from the provider side. Dr. Albawardi and Tina, thank you so much for sharing your time with me and for sharing your experience. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Hey, super listener. Thanks to Dr. Better Albawardi for sharing his knowledge and experience with complementary and alternative therapies with us and for all he does to help patients better understand how they can integrate lifestyle interventions to help with their IBD. You can follow him on Twitter as at Better Albawardi. That's B-A-D-R underscore A-L-B-A-W-A-R-D-Y. Thank you also to Tina Halpert for sharing her perspective as a patient living with ulcerative colitis who has done the hard work to learn more about stress, sleep, and diet, and how they affect IBD. You can follow Tina all over social media and at her website as Carrots and Cake, and that's at C-A-R-R-O-T-S-N-C-A-K-E. Links to a written transcript, everyone's social media handles, and more information on the topics we discussed is in the show notes and on my episode 110 page on aboutibd.com. You can follow me, Amber Tresca, across all social media as About IBD. Thanks for listening. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. This American Gastroenterological Association Colitis Conversations program was supported by Pfizer, Inc. About IBD is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Mix and sound design is by Mac Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio. Oh, 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 oh,